Let me read the scripture. I did that out of the norm, normal order, but I don't think it makes a bit of difference. So uh, Hebrews, Hebrews is, uh, chapter 1 is our jumping off point. You said, what happened to Acts? Um, we are doing just a little topical uh, series on Advent, and then we'll veer right back to Acts uh, at the beginning of the year. But long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we are uh, hitting the season of Advent, uh, I think that uh, Austin actually already told you what that means, but I'll, I'll just say again, uh, Advent literally translated means arrival. It speaks of, uh, of his coming. It's from the Latin. It's, it's part of the church year where we look to and celebrate and think about his, uh, particularly his first coming into the world. I'm kind of an old dog, as you might have uh, noticed, uh, and getting older by the minute, and so when you get to Advent, you, you don't have to be a pastor for very long to start feeling this, this thing where it's like, I've preached on Advent, oh, I don't know, 100 times maybe, give or take, over the last 30-some years. So what more, what, what can I bring that's any, any new to this, if, if anything? And, but then it hit me, some, something came to me, and it's like, oh, this is actually really a cool thought, um, which you would have thought I would have come to about 30 years ago. But given the fact that the word means his coming, his arrival. I got onto this Jaguar, I started thinking about all the places in the scripture that speak of his, you ready for this revolutionary idea? Um, his coming. Um, that seems kind of obvious, but, but, but actually I'm talking about all those places where it talks about it, not in the context necessarily of what we think of as of Advent, like, like Luke and, and so forth, the early chapters, rather other places throughout the scripture. And it, it turns out there, I looked them up, there's like 30 some places or so in the New Testament where it, it speaks of Jesus coming or his appearing or the Lord bringing him or sending him. I mean, there, there's just a ton of places that talk about the intentional coming of Jesus into the world, which is kind of weird if you really think about it, but not weird at all from another. Which is to say, most of them either come right out explicitly and say this, or the implication is very clear that for him to come, he had to be somewhere before that. He had to be pre-existent. And then, then he was sent. Then from there, he willingly chose to come. None of us can say that, can we? How many of us uh, go around saying stuff like that? If you do, you should be smacked, because that's stupid. You can't say, well, the reason I came into the world was, uh, yeah, I wanted to be just a role model uh, to the people around. Like, no, no. We, we didn't have any choice in it. We, didn't ha- we weren't somewhere and then decided to be born. That is absolutely unique to Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what we're going to kind of be looking at in this, uh, uh, this Advent series. So I kind of looked at all the, the various places and looked at sort of thematically what was going on. I chose four of them. Not the hope and love and joy thing this time around, but, uh, but you'll see as we go along. So here's the big idea today, which you already know from your bulletin, and that is that Christ came to reveal the glory of God. So that's what we're looking at, the glory.
glory of God, Christ coming for that purpose. When we talk about glory, the glory of God, what we're talking about is God himself. We're talking about God's perfections. It's the display of God in his worth, in his holiness, in his splendor. Well, now, we know that God had already, in times past, as the book of Hebrews tells us, that God had expressed his glory in other ways. For instance, God expressed his glory in the created order. How many ever noticed God's glory there? Yeah? All of those sunset pictures you posted on Facebook, there was a reason for those, right? Because you saw the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. David in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. But when we're talking about the Son, when we're talking about Christ, he came to reveal God's glory in just a completely more focused way. If you think of of the glory of the heavens being like this this, uh, sort of mixed kaleidoscope of colors and so forth and just sort of this impression of glory. It's as if with the sun, somebody just turned the outer part of the lens and just brought it into bright focus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the writer of Hebrews says, the exact imprint of his nature. God chose to display his glory to us who have eyes of flesh, right? He chose to display that glory to us through the sending of his son. If we go to John's gospel, it says, familiar words to you, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, by the way, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus is the word. He is God's son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He comes from the Father. Verse 14, and the word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we have, here you go, seen his glory. Jesus took on flesh. That's the incarnation. What did we see? We see his glory. Glory is that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ, who is God the Son, the Word, makes us to see the glory of his Father. Look at verse 18 of John. No one has ever seen God. That's a problem. How do we see God's glory if we've never seen him? The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So I don't think I'm twisting any scripture here. I don't think I'm taking anything terribly out of context when I say that that is why Christ came. Not the only reason. Like I said, there's about 30 verses or so. uh, Not 30 totally different topics, but quite a few. But one of the key reasons he came was to display the glory of God. Don't you love that? So that we would see it, so that we would get it. Not just look up at the heavens and go, there must be something more. But to just focus in and go, this is what God is like. This, this is the glory of God. There's three reasons we're going to look at, uh, at today that kind of get at why, why the glory, why we need glory. First of all, God's glory revealed in Christ inclines our heart to holy fear. We need that. We need that. After man fell into sin, every time man comes into contact with God throughout the scripture, what do you see every single time? I think you should have gotten the hint by now. Uh, Fear, right? There's there's always that that sense of fear. You come into the presence of a holy God and suddenly your mind is blown 
and that fear is the natural response. Even if you're a godly person, even if you're a person of, of God's own people, think about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, when he has a vision and he sees God in a vision, he's at the temple and he sees the seraphim, you know, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says there that there's this shaking, there's this, you know, rumbling that takes place and the threshold of the temple is, is, is shaking at, at the presence of God. And then this is Isaiah's reaction. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. See, you get a glimpse of God, all at once you're aware of how filthy you are in, in connection to that. That's what, Paul, that's what Isaiah sees there. It's like in his presence, suddenly he sees his own sin, and, he, and he's undone. He's undone by that. You know, um, if you play a guitar, which... I can do really badly. No one will ever ask me to come up here and be on the worship team. But uh, I do know this. Um, you need to tune the guitar before you start playing it. Have you ever heard somebody play, not a slightly out of tune guitar, but like, I mean just a completely dead out of tune. The, the strings aren't even resembling what note they're supposed to have. What does that sound like? It, it, it sounds awful. For us to be in that place... So where we can experience the, the music, if you will, the tune of the relationship that we are to have with God. We have to be tuned. We might even say we have to be tuned up, <laughs> using that expression. God's got to get a hold of us. God, God has to tune our heart in order to fear him. His glory is of such immensity that it dwarfs us. The light, the glory of his presence, his radiance is so bright that immediately, like Isaiah, we see our sin in bold relief and we fear you say, but what's that got to do with Advent? Because when we look at Advent, what do we think of? We think of Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger. We have him over there, yeah. Baby Jesus in the manger. He's so kind and he's so sweet and there's, no, there's nothing to be afraid of there, is there? Well, do you remember the Christmas story? How many, uh, how many ever saw, you know, um, the, the Christmas special, the, the Peanuts Christmas special? Anybody ever see that one? Yeah, and, and so as a kid, I wasn't very churched, and so I remember that that really got a hold of me when Linus came out and the spotlight hit him, you know, and he starts, uh, takes his thumb out of his mouth, and then he quotes from, the, from Luke, and he talks about the shepherds in the field, and they see this, this, this heavenly display with the angel and the heavenly host, and uh, what does he say? He says, and they were sore afraid. And they were sore afraid. That's King James English. Doesn't mean that they were so afraid that they got sore. It means that they were really, really afraid. When Jesus performed miracles, it, it frightened people. Not all the time. But you remember the great catch of fish? It's when Peter really, for the first time, really got a hold of who Jesus was. And he comes by and he says, hey, throw your nets on the other side. Ah, well, you know, and they do, and they and it's that moment, I have to shorten, you understand? Sometimes it's just better to do sound effects than try to explain the whole passage. But you know the one I'm talking about. And, it, and, it, and mind blown, and he comes and he throws himself down on his face in front of Jesus. And he says, get away, you know, depart, for I am a sinful man. And that's a completely appropriate response when you see Jesus, when you really get a hold of that glory of God. He makes that glory known, and in the making of it known, we should feel fear. How many remember 
And you have to be at least older than 20 by a, a fair amount, I guess. Because it happened in the 90s. Uh, if you remember the 90s, do you remember the Payne Stewart jet crash? How many remember that? A few of you do? That was a weird deal. Because it was like on the news. I think CNN existed back in the 90s. If, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was. And, uh, but you know, you, you already had the 24-hour news cycle. And, and they were announcing that there's this jet, jet uh, Lear jet up there flying. And they can't make contact with it. They scrambled jet fighters to see what was going on, and there was kind of a, a clouded uh, cockpit, and they knew something was off. They couldn't make contact, and for, I don't know, I think it was like six hours that thing flew on autopilot. You remember that? How many remember that? And it's like, oh my goodness, somebody do something. Well, it was too late. There was a depressurization of the, of the cockpit, and, uh, and they stayed on autopilot till they ran out of fuel, and then they all, and then they all died. You say, why do you bring some, something up like that that's so horrible? Well, because that's how my mind works, but I was thinking about that, you know, it was probably a really good way to go, like if you have to die, when I read about how it would have like gone down, apparently you succumb very quickly to the loss of oxygen in that case, and so you're just, you're just asleep until you either die or, you know, the plane crashes and you die, but, but that's a pretty easy way to go. If they had awakened in the middle of what was happening, they would have been frightened beyond belief, wouldn't they? However, they might have been able to land the plane. Do you see where I'm going with that? Like the men and women of Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah, the world is lost. It is asleep in its sin. It doesn't know its right hand from its left. Christ came into the world. We see in him the light of the glory of God. We see in him that radiance. The first instinct is fear. And you're like, well, do we want people to be afraid? Yes. Yes, we do. It's, we're not saying it's pleasant, but, it, but fear is the beginning of wisdom. It shows us who we see who God is. We see who we are in relationship to him. And then, awakened, we realize, we realize the danger of our circumstance. Now, if you want them to just be asleep on autopilot till they finally crash into their destruction... But I wouldn't wish that on someone. I say, yeah, they need to see, they need to fear, and, and, and that's part of sharing the gospel with people when they see Christ in that glory. Secondly, God's glory revealed in Christ inclines our hearts to worship. We see, um, we see the worship of God intimately connected with Christ coming into the world. Back in, in Hebrews, it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship. The event of his birth was just a worship-soaked event. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among, the, with, um, among those with whom he is pleased. Unless you think that the, that the praise and worship was only with the angels, look what it says a few verses later. And the shepherds returned, this is after they've seen Mary and the baby, Jesus, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So God the Son comes into the world, draws glory to the Father, taking on our humanity, and that becomes one of the most incredible worship events of all time. It is, it is like a, a big shot of espresso for the world in terms of like just the spiritual muscle of worship is, is set on fire. 
There are a lot of Hebrew and Greek words for worship, which we could go into, but I'd actually like to talk at this point about the English word worship, which, believe it or not, it doesn't do a bad job of summarizing a lot of the ideas, the basic ideas of biblical worship. How many have heard the origin of the word worship? Yeah? It, it, it derives from the word worth. Yeah, like way back in Old English, it would have been like uh, worth-ship. It, it, worth-skip, I think, is, is, is where it started. But it, it meant worship. It meant seeing worth. That's what worship is. When we see the glory of God in Christ, when we catch a glimpse of glory, however it might be, that, that, that draws our attention to the Lord, what happens is we, we see his worth. Worship is the response of our soul, of a believing soul, when it comes to grips with how worthy and wonderful God actually is. For us to be worship, for us to, I'm sorry, for us to worship well, we really need to be smitten. Have you ever been smitten? Yes? All you married people, the answer is yes. <laughs> Seriously, yes, oh Absolutely, surely I've been there. But, but we, have to be, we have to be overcome and captivated with, with the worth of something. Think of a little boy with a bulldozer, okay? Well, a girl could be, no, just let's not go there, okay? The little boy with a bulldozer. A little, not, a, not a full life real bulldozer, okay? That would be scary right there, talk about fear. But no, I, you know, when a little boy sees a bulldozer or a dump truck and he hears the noise and the rumble, what, what is that? Like, what draws his heart to that in worship? You say, well, that's not worship. It is. He sees the power of this incredibly big, huge, loud thing, and it can do all that. It can move massive amounts of dirt or whatever it is, and his little heart leaps at the worth of this object, and he wants a little idol. He asks for a little, he wants a little bulldozer idol. And we give him the little bulldozer idol, you know, and he burns incense to it. No, he doesn't. He, he, what does he do? He takes it, you know, he makes noises with it, and he imagines, his, he, he, he sets his heart on the hope of one day, you know, being old enough that he can actually have one of his own and drive the thing around. We can worship God to the extent that we contemplate his perfections, when we think about all that he means to us. We can worship him through the word of God. Most of all, more, more importantly, we can worship him, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, as we get a hold of an image, that clear sense of God in the Son, the Lord Jesus. Advent means we see in Christ the clearest and best expression of God and the worth of that now become flesh, dwelling in our midst, taking on our flesh, becoming unto us our, our high priest and, and, yeah, and all, all that goes with it. So we behold and our hearts respond, our hearts react in worship. Our era and our culture unfortunately have done a lot of bad things to Advent. Advent, if we really had a hold of it, how many have been to the Grand Canyon? How many can imagine being to the Grand Canyon? It's hard, right? If you haven't been, there's hard, but you, people tell you and you see pictures and you go, yeah, that would be pretty. But like, you go to the, to the edge there of the Grand Canyon and you stand and you look out and take all of that in on a beautiful day. It's, it's, it's stunning. There's, there, there's a moment of just complete awe. That's Advent, Yeah? 
That is Advent. When we get a hold of it, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's magnificent. And yet what our culture has done would be the equivalent of putting strip malls and amusement park all the way around the canyon. Like we want people to appreciate the canyon, so let's just put up a lot of retail all the way around it. You go, no, that would be a horrible thing. Why would you do that? Why do we do it? it, it, it it's so hard. It's so hard to break through all of the trappings and everything to see the wonder of, of the moment. I do think we need to insist on that. We need to be like the shepherds who, having heard the message, said, hey, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's been told to us. We need to be like the magi who see the star and they're like, man, there's something incredible over there. We think it's going to be the king of the Jews. Let's, let's, let's take off and go off after it. We need to be like Herod. I'm like, well, I don't want to be like Herod. But he did search for the Christ. He had wrong motives. He had wrong motives as to why he was trying to catch up with and find the Christ child. But man, he was, he was, he was after it, wasn't he? We need to be like the woman who, who had the issue of blood, who forced her way through the crowd just so she, she could grab a hold of the, the hem of his garment. We need to be like blind Bartimaeus who, who cries out to him, you know, Lord Jesus, have pity on me. He's, he will not, you know, they tell him, shh, shut up, he's an important person and you're just a stupid blind guy. And he's like, no, and he just, he's just shoving his way through. Advent invites us to behold the glory of God in the person of the Son. And we need, we need to be insistent on that, partly because God deserves it. Reason number one, isn't that true? Above everything else, before it's about me, it's about him. God is the greatest being in all the universe, beyond all the universe. He created the universe, so yeah, he is, he is utterly worthy of all glory, and we owe that to him. Just in and of his own self, he's worthy of that. But the truth of the matter is there is a satisfaction when we experience real glory. There's something very important in that for us. I think about Simeon. You remember the guy Simeon at the temple when they brought the baby Jesus there? Now I'd be technically into Epiphany, but I'm not, I don't, not worried about that. Anyway, so he comes to the temple and, 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 and Simon, this old, old man, takes Jesus into his arm to bless him. And when he does, he says to the Lord, he prays, now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have beheld your salvation. Isn't that a sweet moment? Yeah. That, that's, that's what Advent ought to be for us when we see his worth, when we see his salvation, life, eternal joy, hope, peace, all those things that the candles candle stand for. That ought to be our response. It's the greatest satisfaction our souls can know. Advent is the worship event of the ages. Okay, finally, God's glory revealed in Christ inclines our heart to the gospel. So the advent of Christ is the advent of salvation. Remember the story. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. At his birth, an angel of the Lord proclaims the gospel. Did you know that, that the first evangelist was an angel? Was. I mean, unless you take the Old Testament prophets, but I mean, within the New Testament, the first evangelist is an angel because he declares to them good news. The very word in Greek is, is derived from the word for gospel, 
as is the word evangelism. It's evangelizo, evangelizo um, is, is, is the word here in the text. He's, he's preaching, he's evangelized. He's saying that in the birth of Jesus, the true good news has come to God's people. We need Easter to complete the whole uh, union, you know, the whole, the whole duality there, but yet already in his birth we see the good news. How can that be? If, if, if he's born but he hasn't yet died, how can it be good news already? Have you ever asked yourself how it was that Jesus went about preaching the gospel at the beginning of his ministry? How many have had that question? Like, well, wait a second, the gospel is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through which we're saved, but it says in the gospels that at the beginning of the three years of his ministry, he went around preaching the gospel, the good news. Has that question ever occurred to you? How does he do that? It's because he's the good news. He is, he is the good news. Now, the, the, the fleshing out of that and the work of it, of course, you know, you do. You have to have the cross and everything for the completion of all of that, but it's in him. You, ha- you have to, be, to believe uh, the gospel. We have to understand and completely grasp that. There is a, a blindness in the world that people simply do not get. It's a fascinating part of the Advent story, as I said earlier, that Herod, more than anyone, took the birth of Jesus deadly seriously. He was so paranoid that Jesus was a king and that his kingdom was threatened that he had all the boys two years of age and under in Bethlehem put to death. Apart from a new birth by the Holy Spirit, we are all dead, dead to the beauty and the worth of the birth of the Savior. Look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God opens our hearts to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, then we indeed begin to see the weight and the meaning of Advent. We see the glorious beauty of the child in the manger. The sight that the shepherds beheld makes us cry out to be saved. It makes us sensible toward the preaching of the gospel like a moth drawn to the flame. Being awakened to God, we are drawn into the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who know Jesus, it's hard for for us to understand how people can walk past the manger, uh, metaphorically, spiritually speaking, and not grasp in the advent God's incredible love for sinners. How do they miss that? How do they miss the fact that that unto us is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord? You know, we sing the song Silent Night, which I love, and we'll sing it again um, Christmas Eve. But um, it really wasn't silent in one sense, was it? In fact, if, if, if you could think about it spiritually speaking, Advent, the birth of Christ would have been 
louder than that, that vision that Isaiah had in the temple. It would have been earth-shaking. It would have been an, at an ear-splitting decibel. Look what it says. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Isn't that glorious? That That doesn't seem silent at all. That's a proclamation. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Advent displays the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus. And if we see it, if we comprehend it, then we love it. And if we see the love in it, we bend the knee and and we trust him. Advent should open our hearts to the glory. That light of Christ should dawn on us to where we really want the gospel. Here's a weird thing uh, that I was thinking about the other day. Um, Do you realize that we get on average 12 hours of uh, night throughout the year? Right? Is my math off on that? You're like, well, in summer, I'm not getting nearly 12, but in the winter, you're getting a lot more, and then you have the equinoxes, right, and everything. So when you average it all out, there's like 12 hours of darkness in, uh, per night, and we're not sleeping 12, well, I'm not sleeping 12 hours. I'm lucky if I get six. So anyway, so that means, I don't know, how many hours of darkness is that? If you had 10 hours a night, you'd have, what, 3,650 hours of darkness, but anyway, sorry, my math's not that great. My, my point where I'm going with this is how many minutes per year do you spend looking at the night sky out of all the hours and hours of, of that? The Bible says it displays God's glory. The Bible says that everything that is created displays God's glory and the firmament declare that. So the firmament, that's the sky. How, many, how much time do you waste? Look, can you name the constellations? Do you know the planets when you look at them? You know, I was thinking about it. If a meteor hit the earth, you know, in the five minutes leading up to the meteor crashing into the earth, 99% of the people wouldn't see it. Unless somebody said, hey, go outside, there's a meteor hitting the earth. But just randomly looking up, oh, gosh, there's a meteor. No, you'd have to see it as a reflection in your smartphone. That's the only way you would know it was up there. You're like, you're like man, Jay, you're really dogging us about not looking at the night sky. I'm sorry, okay? Um, not, not my point, not my point. But my point is that there's glory there all the time declaring the existence of God. People aren't even looking. A, a glory is constantly here for us. It is the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full and of grace and truth, and he has come. He has come into this world, but the world around us is perpetually blind. If you are a believer, dive deep into the glory of Christ this season. Try to push past. I know you've heard this a million times, and, and, and so, yeah. But what is, it's so easy to lose sight. It is so easy to get caught up in the strip malls and, and the amusement parks and everything that's blocking our view. Do everything you can within your, within your life. Take time. Quiet yourself Look to the scriptures, but push through there. Get, get to the edge of the canyon and look out. Look at what God has done. Behold what he has done in the glory of Christ, in the coming of his son. He has displayed his glory, his salvation, and, uh, and take hold of that. If you're not a believer, um, what, what, what can we do to help you? 
We could shout at you. We, and you probably wouldn't appreciate it. But, 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 you know, if you were asleep in a cockpit, getting ready to, to crash into the ground, you, you would think that was okay, right? If we just yelled. And, 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 and with everything in our heart, we want to yell at you and say, wake up, wake up, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is, that is the expression of God's love and mercy. It is, it is in that, that child. He comes. He comes with, with healing in his wings. He comes bearing our humanity. And there's nothing that you've set your heart upon. There is, there's, there is no idol. There, there is no hope that you've set your heart on that could ever bring you satisfaction in the way that Jesus Christ can. And so we hold them out to you this, this first Sunday in Advent and we say, come behold him. Behold the one that has come to be a savior of mankind. Put your trust in him today. Believe in him and let him save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we as your people fail so often um, to really look up, to look into the mystery, to look into the gift that you are and, and see your glory because we're caught up in a great many things. But help us, Lord, in this season of the year of Advent to, uh, in a new way, remind ourselves that you came into the world to display the glory of God. And in that glory, we see God's love and mercy. Yes, holiness to make our hearts fear, but, but mercy because a Savior has been born and we glory in that. And we pray, Lord, that if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, that this would be the, that moment, that time when, when you uh, open their eyes and suddenly, like Peter did that day after the great catch of, of fish, it would just blow their mind and they would see and they would fall on their face before you in fear and they would cry out and they would confess their sins to you and find salvation in your name. We pray that that would happen. We pray, Lord, that we as a church might be there to surround such a one and to love them and to help them grow in their faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.